0: hey everyone just a a quick introduction to the episode um so i got about halfway through recording this and my audio interface which um without getting too technical that's basically the heart of my recording sort of setup, just completely died um just completely crapped the bed so um i've had to resort to recording this on my camera because it's the second best microphone that i've got and it's the only way i can think of recording like Decent-ish audio that hopefully I can work with and get some decent audio out. Um, on a plus side, it means if you're a patron member, you got a patron uh, video <laughs> because I may as well stick the video up since I'm recording it. Um, but yeah, otherwise, hopefully, so the audio quality will, will, will be decent. Um, if it wasn't Christmas, I may have been able to get this out. You know. May have been able to replace it but obviously with it being Christmas and stuff there's nothing I can really do this side of Christmas in terms of replacing my equipment until um yeah after Christmas so so you know we we make the best of the tools we've got right um so yeah this episode hopefully the audio quality will be good enough for you um i I'll, I'll do the best I can with say the tools I've got until after Christmas and I can work out some sort of replacement, um but yeah. Anyway, thanks for listening. I hope you enjoy it. Hopefully, the audio is is still good enough for you. Cheers. August thirtieth, eighteen sixteen. The days begin to draw in more perceptibly than ever. Now that the archdeaconry papers are reduced to order, I must find some further employment for the evening hours of autumn and winter. It's a great blow that Letitia's health will not allow her to stay below these months. Why not go on with my defence of episcopacy? It may be useful. September 15th. Letitia has left me for Brighton. October 11th. Candles lit in the choir for the first time at evening prayers. It came as a shock. I find that I absolutely shrink from the dark season. November 17th. Much struck by the character of the carving on my desk. I do not know that I ever carefully noticed it before. My attention was called to it by accident. During the Magnificat, I was, I regret to say, almost overcome with sleep. My hand was resting on the back of the carved figure of a cat, which is the nearest to me of the three figures on the end of my stool. I was not aware of this, for I was not looking in that direction until I was startled by what seemed a softness, a feeling as of rather rough and coarse fur, and a sudden movement, as if the creature were twisting round its head to bite me. I regained complete consciousness in an instant and I have some idea that I must have uttered a suppressed exclamation for I noticed that Mr Treasurer turned his head quickly in my direction. The impression of the unpleasant feeling was so strong that I found myself rubbing my hand upon my surplus. This accident led me to examine the figures after prayers more carefully than I had done before and I realised for the first time with what skill they are executed. December 6th. I do indeed miss Letitia's company. The evenings after I have worked as long as I can at my defence are very trying. The house is too large for a lonely man and visitors of any kind are too rare. I get an uncomfortable impression when going to my room that there is company of some kind. The fact is, I may as well formulate it to myself, That I hear voices. This, I am well aware, is a common symptom of incipient decay of the brain, and I believe that I should be less disquieted than I am if I had any suspicion that this was the cause. I have none, none whatever, nor is there anything in my family history to give colour to such an idea. Work diligent work and a punctual attention to the duties which fall to me is the best remedy, and I have little doubt that it will prove efficacious. January the first. My trouble is, I must confess it, increasing upon me. Last night upon my return after midnight from the deanery, I lit, I lit my candle to go upstairs. I was nearly at the top when something whispered to me, Let me wish you a happy new year. I could not be mistaken. It spoke distinctly and with a peculiar emphasis. Had I dropped my candle, as I all but did, I trembled to think what the consequences must have been. As it was, I managed to get up the last flight and it was quickly in my room with the door locked and experienced no other disturbance. January the 15th I had occasion to come downstairs last night to my workroom for my watch, which I had inadvertently left on my table when I went up to bed. I think I was at the top of the last flight when I had a sudden impression of a sharp whisper in my ear. Take care. I clutched the balusters and naturally looked round at once. Of course, there was nothing. After a moment, I went on. It was no good turning back, but I had as nearly as possible fallen. A cat, a large one by the feel of it, slipped between my feet. But again, of course, I saw nothing. It may have been the kitchen cat, but I do not think it was. February 27th A curious thing last night which I should like to forget. Perhaps if I put it down here, I may see it in its true proportion. I worked in the library from about nine to 10. The hall and staircase seemed to be unusually full of what I can only call movement without sound. By this, I mean that there seemed to be continuous going and coming, and that whenever I ceased writing to listen or looked out into the hall, the stillness was absolutely unbroken nor, in going to my room at any earlier hour than usual, about half past ten, was I conscious of anything that I could call a noise. It so happened that I had told John to come to my room for the letter to the bishop, which I wished to have delivered early in the morning at the palace. He was to sit up, therefore, and come for it when he heard me retire. This I had for the moment forgotten, though I had remembered to carry the letter with me to my room. But when, as I was winding up my watch, I heard a light tap at the door and a low voice saying, may I come in, which I I undoubtedly did hear. I recollected the fact and took up the letter from my dressing table saying, certainly, come in. No one, however, answered my summons. And it was now that, as I strongly suspect, I committed an error. For I opened the door and held the letter out. There was certainly no one at that moment in the passage. But in the instant of me standing there, the door at the end opened and John appeared carrying a candle. I asked him whether he had come to the door earlier, but I'm so satisfied that he had not. I do not like the situation, but although my senses were very much on the alert, and, and though it was some time before I could sleep, I must allow that I perceived nothing further of an untoward character. But that was M.R. James from an excerpt from the Stools of Barchester Cathedral uh, I just thought I'd open this episode with a bit of M.R. James because hey it's Christmas right um, but yeah welcome everyone to the Christmas campfire episode uh, it's a little bit different this year like I say like it's somewhat um, like I said in the introduction Yeah, everything's a, a little bit different I'm re- my recorded situation is very different to what I'd normally be doing so I feel somewhat strange but we'll get through it um and enjoy it whilst we do so because hey christmas campfire is my favorite episode of the year and i'm damned if i'm not going to get through this and enjoy it so yeah thanks very much we had so many people um in their stories it was amazing so without further ado let's jump into people's stories because that's what this episode's all about not my waffle right so let's go Okay, so the first story is uh, from Rose um, and Rose writes, it was the summer of 2007 and my best mate and I decided to meet up in England for an epic journey through the UK. We set out to couch surf our way through England, Wales and Scotland. Neither of us had traveled to Scotland before and I decided to do a mini tour of Glasgow, Edinburgh and of course Loch Ness. I'd heard that Edinburgh is considered to be one of the most haunted cities in the world. So we thought it would be prudent to do a couple of ghost tours whilst visiting. We booked two walking tours, one cemetery tour during the day and one below ground tour for the evening. The daytime tour took place at Greyfire's Kirkyard, nominated by many supernatural experts as a highly paranormal cemetery. It was a beautiful and sunny afternoon and nothing seemed terribly unusual about the graveyard. Prior to beginning the tour, the guides gave us a little history lesson and told us that they had the exclusive access to a particular part of the cemetery and that the cemetery had been sectioned off by the city because too many strange occurrences were happening. The touring company had petitioned to get the keys to the area that was said to have been patrolled by a mean-spirited cemetery guard. Within the section of the cemetery, there are above-ground mausoleums that we would have the ability to spend time in. The guard who was said to haunt the mausoleums was in charge of guarding an area of the cemetery where plague-ridden people were basically kept and left to die. By many accounts he was said to be particularly cruel and vicious and lived and died a bitter man. We were told that we were not allowed to take any photographs once behind the gates of this area and that it would be advisable to make sure that any electronic devices were to be turned off because entities could use the energy to their advantage. We proceed through the gates and into one of the mausoleums where we all huddled in, a group of about ten of us, for more historical lessons. We were told that if we experienced hot and or cold spots that we may be exposed to paranormal activity. At this moment, I felt cold and my mate felt warm. We were also told that we could only spend ten minutes in the mausoleum because any more than that would entice the entities because there would be too much energy for them to draw on. At the end of 10 minutes, someone wearing a scream mask jumps out and we all scream and laugh. Once everyone settled down, the guide then said we have to now leave because we are at the end of the 10 minutes and you don't want to be the last people out. My friend and I, feeling gypped by a cheap jump scare, thought we could linger a little to see if anything would happen. My friend and I spent about a minute alone in the mausoleum and once everyone had gone, we quickly went out. As we were walking away from the mausoleum, trying to catch up with the rest of the group, my friend yelps and looks as if she would tripped over something. I asked her if she was okay and she said yes, but began limping. She then said that she had some pain at the location of her Achilles heel and she lifted up her pant leg and her white sock had been soaked with blood. She pulled down her sock and you could clearly see a gash at her Achilles tendon. What was strange about this is that her pant hadn't been ripped. She wore her pants long and over her shoes. Her sock hadn't been torn, but somehow something managed to create a cut so deep that it caused severe bleeding. We were terrified and ran to the tour guide's office for medical aid and observed several photos on the wall of patrons with similar cuts, bruises and other injuries as a result of the tour. The first aid kit had also been depleted, so we were left with very little to treat the wound. At this stage, we were not sure what to expect but knew that there was absolutely no way that something could have caused that. There was no sharp edges nearby, nothing in the ground save for grass and graveyard dirt. We then quickly remembered that we still had one more tour in the evening to do. Although my friend could barely walk, we said, fuck it, we've already been attacked by a poltergeist, might as well go for the full Monty. The second tour was interesting because we got a chance to explore the vast underground city below the city. We got to see old torture devices and a room where a coven used to hold their rituals. It was completely dark on this tour, and we felt very vulnerable. This tour told us of the history of the underground tunnels and city where undesirables and plague victims folk were kept. The tour also employed the same tactic of spending ten minutes in a particular area that is said to have high paranormal activity. This time my friend and I decided to not take any chances and we stuck to the programme. The tour ended with another silly jump scare and in one of the most haunted pubs in all of Edinburgh. Over beers, we told our story to a few of the other patrons and one woman began looking at her photos from the tour and noticed something or someone in one of the pictures. She had been taking photos in the dark with the hopes of catching an orb or something on camera. Through her viewfinder, she zooms in on a photo of me next to the tour guide and as plain as day, you see the outline of a hooded figure or spectre. I have the photo to prove it. At this point, my friend and I had enough and made our way back to her friend's flat. The next day, we went to Loch Ness and were convinced that we'd also see Nessie, considering how bizarre of a trip it had been thus far. Needless to say, we didn't see her, but we happy to leave the eerie and beautiful landscapes of Scotland to go back to England, a slightly less haunted country. Fast forward to the next leg of the trip when we were in Leeds. My mate had been seeing a guy, longingly reread a text conversation she had with him a few days prior. Much to her surprise, she noticed that the text had been jumbled but absolutely does not remember the text looking that way before. In the text it reads, we bite and you start paying for it. She reads it out loud to me and we both stare at each other quietly remembering that whilst in the cemetery we were instructed to turn off all electronic devices, but my mate hadn't turned off her cell phone. We at that moment came to the conclusion that the gash on her Achilles heel was a bite from the entity. And he wanted us to know that indeed, yes, it had all been real. So that was a story from Rose. And she sent me the photos to prove it. She sent me photos um, of the cuts on the heel and stuff. And, yeah, it's pretty freaky. So that's one to start us off. So the next story we've got is from Claire and... Claire says, here's my weird, completely true story that isn't a story, it's more of an event. I hope it creeps you out. Uh, Yeah, cheers, Claire. (laughs) So about 10 years ago when I was 14, my grandmother had a series of strokes and ended up in hospital. After she'd been there for a week or so, we got a call saying to get to the hospital ASAP because she didn't have long left. So I went with my parents and younger brother to say our goodbyes. When we arrived, my granddad, my auntie and uncle, my two older cousins, were already by her bedside. My parents went in ahead of us. My brother, who was, and still is, shockingly, a couple of years younger than me, came in after them. As soon as I walked in, I could clearly see my grandma lying on the bed. She hadn't passed yet, but was unconscious, and we got there just in time to say goodbye. My brother moved to stand closer to her, and the family surrounded her, but I was too shocked to move and instead stood hovering by the curtain. My sadness had turned in an instant to confusion and fear. There was something wrong with her eyes. My mum came over to me and gently pulled me towards her. I assumed she thought that I was too upset to go to my grandma myself and wanted to gently encourage me to stand beside her, her with the rest of the family. I moved forward, hoping that I was seeing was some weird trick of the light, and that the illusion would be broken by my moving somewhere else. Nope. I stood to the left of my grandma, just a couple of feet away from her face, staring at her eyes in confusion. They were wide open and pitch black. It wasn't just the pupils that were black, it was the entire eye, both eyes. She was looking up at the ceiling with this horribly wide-eyed, glassy, pitch black stare. She never blinked. I kept watching, telling myself that I was seeing must be a result of the strokes, right? I was there for a good two or three minutes at least. This was not a case of bloodshot eyes. They were pitch black. It was like two huge glossy marbles had been shoved in her eye sockets and were bulging out of her head. No discernible pupil or iris, just shining black orbs. I left the room. Less than two minutes later, my brother came down to the waiting area to tell me she'd gone. Later on that day, I'd asked my mum why grandma's eyes looked the way they did. I was hoping she'd have some medical explanation for me, maybe some kind of insane pupil pupil dilation or blood clotting in the eyes, but no. She told me her eyes were closed and seemed kind of pissed off that I'd brought it up. So I asked my brother about it the next day. He seemed confused too. I didn't tell either of them what I'd seen exactly, just that there was something wrong with her eyes and that it had scared me and they didn't, and did they know what it could have been? Neither of them knew what I was talking about and my brother also told me that her eyes were closed. I decided to drop it because I didn't want to upset them. It's something that I've vividly remembered ever since. I've thought about it often and have done a lot of research online but have found nothing that can explain what I saw. A few years ago, I even broached the topic with my mum again. I told her for the first time exactly what I saw. Again, she seemed confused and assured me that her eyes were definitely closed and that no one else had seen what I'd seen. Just for a bit of context, my grandma was a staunch Catholic, the kind that went to church every Sunday and wore a crucifix around her neck. She was a really nice person and everything you'd want in a grandparent. It wasn't like she was some kind of satanic Ouija enthusiast who'd invited a demon to inhabit her body before she died. She was just a sweet religious old lady who liked homemade Yorkshire puddings and spending time with her family. So that's my creepy story that isn't really a story. I hope you enjoyed it. So yeah, thanks very much, Claire. That is a creepy story that is a little bit disturbing or more than a little bit disturbing but yeah thank you very much for sharing that it's that's quite um it's quite a moment to share so yeah thank you very much for that so our next story is from james and james says in the late 1990s and early 2000s my family moved back and forth between the united states and toulouse a city in the south of france on account of my dad's job At the time the story takes place, my parents were renting a two-storey farmhouse surrounded by vineyards in a rural village about 20 miles north of Toulouse. It was a striking and beautiful house built around 1900, rectangular with a flat roof and rows of large evenly spaced windows, each framed by heavy wooden shutters. A driveway of finely crushed gravel curved down the road to the front of the house where it broadened into a parking area. My parents lived there with my two younger brothers. My older brother and I were both in college back in the states at this time and only lived in the house during holidays and summer vacations when I visited I stayed in a bedroom on the ground floor in the front right corner of the house as you look towards it from the gravel drive. One of the two windows in the room looked directly out over the drive. The house did not have air conditioning which was and probably still is a rare amenity in that part of the world. On summer nights, we would sleep with the windows open and the shutters partially closed and latched to allow the cool night air into the house. One night, during our first summer in the house, I was awakened by the sound of footsteps in the gravel outside the open window of my room. They moved steadily from one side to the other and then back in the opposite direction, as if someone were pacing back and forth in front of the house. I lay in bed, listening to the footsteps grow gradually closer, pass directly beneath my window and retreat into the distance, only to return moments later. The window was directly across the room from my bed, but with the shutters partially closed, I couldn't see anything through the window except a thin strip of uninterrupted darkness. Then, after a few minutes, the footsteps ceased. After a further few minutes, I got out of bed, left my room, softly crossed to the entryway of the house and opened the front door. I stood in the open doorway and scanned the driveway. I saw no one, nothing that could have caused the sounds I heard. I took the few steps down from the front door to the drive, which was suddenly bathed in pale yellow light as the motion-activated floodlights in the front of the house snapped on. Only then did it occur to me that if someone had been walking in front of my room, they surely would have tripped the lights, just as I did. I went back to bed, and don't remember whether I slept or not for the rest of the night. At the time, my family thought the noise I heard must have been an animal, like a stray dog or a cat which would not have been uncommon in the rural area. Someone suggested that the sound was water dripping off the eaves of the house. It had rained earlier that evening, combined with an overactive imagination. These are both plausible explanations and I'm sure there are others. I'll just say that I know what I heard. It wasn't a dog or a cat or water dripping off the house. It was the sound of a person's footsteps walking back and forth across gravel right outside my window in the middle of the night. It would be easier to write off the experience as a product of an overactive imagination if it weren't for something that happened to my youngest brother over a year later. He was home alone, sick from school one day, and laying down in his bedroom on the second floor of the house. Out of nowhere, he heard the sound of heavy footsteps slowly walking up the stairs. As they neared the second floor landing, he called out, Dad? Thinking it was our dad coming home early from work. The footsteps stopped. My brother got out of bed to investigate and found no one. No one on the stairs, no one on the first floor. The doors and windows were all closed and locked. My brother described the footsteps he heard as loud and heavy, as if coming from an adult man wearing boots. For my part, I had the impression that the footsteps I heard on the gravel that night were those of a petite woman. Admittedly, this may be the result of my mind making a convenient connection. Not long before I heard the footsteps, i have been poking around the attic of the house and came across an old framed picture, propped up, faced inwards against a wall, in a dusty forgotten corner. On turning it over, I found that it was a portrait of a young woman, smiling and wearing clothes from the turn of the last century. That's the whole story. I don't know anything about the people who lived and worked in the house before us. At this point, nearly 20 years later, I doubt I ever will. And I'm not sure I really want to. Yeah, that's a good story, I like that. When you was like talking about going outside on the house when you first started hearing the footsteps as well, my mind was just like, no, no, pack it in. It's like a horror film when you know that they're gonna do something that they really shouldn't be doing. You should just be in bed with your head under the covers and ignoring it. But yeah, thanks very much. So our next story is a story from Rachel. And uh, Rachel says, Uh, that she's got a story that comes from her great-uncle Mash, who was from a small village on the Isle of Skye. He was a local storyteller and knew all the ghost stories of the village, often seeing ghosts and ghost cars. I think he sometimes thought of himself to have anda Shilad, I'm going to butcher this, uh, anda Shilad, or the second site. One of his best stories was about Mr Hopperty. Mr McAllister owned the Strathaird estate on Skye sometime in the 1800s. He apparently only had one leg, so he walked with crutches and he was said to be a horrible man. When his servants died, he would put their bodies in a burn in the woods, just leaving them there without any sort of burial or anything. Other servants would come and try to give them some sort of burial by putting stones on top of them. Even day after heavy rain, human bones are sometimes found around the burn. Anyway, when McAllister died, he was buried in his own mini graveyard, like a small sort of square enclosure made of brick with a gate in Glasnakill Glazna- Woods, near the burn, where he put his dead servants. Now he comes out at twilight to haunt the woods and moors around Strathaird. Mash said that he once saw McAllister, or Mr Hopperty, nameless this because of his one leg, up on the moors, with his crutch and one leg. People walking through the woods at night often mention a strange feeling coming over them when they walk past McAllister's grave. So that's Mr Hopperty. If you got this far, thank you for reading and I hope you have a lovely Christmas and New Year. Yeah, you too, Rachel. Thanks very much. Mr. Hoppy is cool. That's a cool name. And I think that's a kind of urban legend that could really, like, grow and, and become, like, mega popular, I guess, around that local area. You know, that kind of Mr. Hoppy of the local area because the way it's got all the local connections, I like it. The next story is from Lisa from New Mexico. And she says, 12 years ago, my daughter and I traveled to Thailand to spend the holidays with my brother and his family, who live in the outskirts of Bangkok. New Year's Eve day had been a busy one, and that night the kids celebrated on their own, while we adults barely made it to midnight before retiring to bed. I'd just fallen asleep, when I dropped straight into an intense dream. I was in a nightclub, there were flashing white lights and large speakers, but no music playing. As I looked around, people began running in one direction and either I just knew or someone yelled that there was a fire and that the back doors were locked and we could only get out through the front. Sheer panic suddenly set in and my only thought was that I had to find my daughter. I stood perfectly still, frozen in fear amidst the chaos, searching for her in the crowds of terrified people running past me. Finally, I saw her in the distance, running towards the front door with a group of friends She didn't see me, but I knew she was safe, and a feeling of relief washed over me. In the next moment, I was on the ground outside the building, half sitting, half lying on the concrete. I wondered how I got there, and then had the urge to go back inside to try to save someone. I started getting up and realised that I was being held down by four or five sets of hands, but that I couldn't see anyone there. I could only feel the hands. I freaked out and started flailing to get out of their grip. The physical struggle jolted me out of the dream and I woke up sitting straight up in bed, out of breath, trembling and covered with sweat. I looked at the clock and it was 12.39 a.m. I took note of the time because rarely, if ever, have I had such an intense dream so quickly after falling asleep. Everything about this dream felt odd and it took a long time for my body to calm down. I didn't get much sleep that night. I just kept thinking, what was that? As soon as I heard my brother making his coffee the next morning, I went down to join him. He asked me what was wrong, and I recounted the strange dream. As I spoke, he started looking at me funny and asked what time the dream had occurred. I told him and asked why. He slowly turned his laptop towards me. The top story that morning was of the Santika club fire, which had occurred in Bangkok just hours before. The fire was believed to have started just after midnight, possibly ignited by fireworks set off by the band, coincidentally called Burn. The back exit doors in the club were locked. 67 people were killed and 222 were injured as they struggled to escape through the front doors. I do not know what my dream was or how I was connected to the terrible events of that night. I've told very few people about it over the years, always feeling like it wasn't really my story to tell, almost like I was an accidental witness to someone else's experience. Yeah, that's creepy. But I assume your daughter wasn't in the club, right? So that's all, like, you know, that's good news. <laughs> but yeah, no, thank you for your story. That is, that is weird. It's yet again a, another story that could like deeply scar you over the years, I can imagine. <laughs> so our next story is from Jim and Jim says, back in 1988, I was in my third year at grammar school and it was a tradition that every boy who could carry a tune was required to make up a choir for the school carol service in the local parish church. The final rehearsal was at the church on the morning of the service. The main event was to take place in the evening. A 15 to 20 minute walk down into town and we were considered responsible enough to make our own way there and back. On the way down, we all walked pretty much en masse along the main road down the hill into town but walking up to school, people drifted back up in drips and drabs. I was part of a small group of five or six who took the most direct route which took us along a footpath that was bordered on one side with the fences of people's gardens and on the other with a wire mesh fence that marked out the top of the town cemetery. The footpath was very much hemmed in and darkened by the trees hanging over from both the graveyard and people's gardens and the path itself was muddy and covered in wet slippery leaves. We were being typical daft, 13-year-olds gooning about, shoving each other into one another and taking our time getting back to school without really paying attention to what is actually quite a scoop, quite a spooky footpath. Just over halfway up and several minutes since we had passed a gate leading into the graveyard, we saw an old man and his equally old dog heading towards us on the path. The man was shuffling along, barely lifting his feet as he made his painfully slow way along the footpath. The dog was like his owner in that he was equally as unkempt and he too betrayed his advanced years in his lolloping walk. As this shabby pair got closer we stopped messing about and became well behaved young boys. It was a grammar school after all and that came with expectations. But we all noticed as they got closer that the old man looked very much like a really old and decrepit Bruce Forsyth. This caused us to get the giggles. But we politely parted and stood on the side of the path to let him and his shaggy dog pass. As soon as they passed, we huddled together, trying to hold in our laughter at how creakingly old he was and how much he looked like the famous entertainer. We all turned to watch the achingly slow pair as they proceeded down the path away from us. But there was no sign of either of them. They had totally disappeared. But the only way they could have disappeared was to either climb over one of the back fences these were all head height to protect the gardens and houses from nighttime visitors to the footpath, or they would have had to sprint down the muddy, slippery path to the cemetery gate. Neither of these things could realistically have happened. We all as one turned and run, slipping, sliding all the way up the path and back to school without saying a word to each other. Rather than going back to our classes, we all decamped, breathless, to the library and spent the next half an hour convincing each other that there was a rational explanation for the disappearing man and his dog i don't think any of us actually believed this but eventually we all bravely pretended that we were okay with what had happened and we went our separate ways never to really speak about it again but i for one have never forgotten the day we all saw the apparition of a, de- of a decrepit bruce sawsithe and his aged hound disappear on that dark footpath alongside the graveyard Cheers, Jim. That's really hard to read and take seriously, though, with Bruce Forsyth because all I've got in my mind is... So if you're you're, um, familiar with Bruce... uh, If you're British, I guess you'd be familiar with Bruce Forsyth, but if you're not British, I probably haven't got a clue who he is. And he was this, like, old doddery man with a face that was almost as long as mine um, and this massive chin, and he... uh, It's like he made this noise like that. (laughs) Well, he didn't, actually. I think it's like a comedy sketch of him that I remember um, that was sort of like s- satirising him. And that's all I've got in my head, as in making this ridiculous noise. Anyway, thanks very much for your story, Jim. I think probably that would be more creepy for the Americans who don't know who Bruce Forsyth is, because otherwise, yeah, the Bruce Forsyth bit just makes it funny. Anyway, this story's from Russ. Uh, Russ says, this isn't actually his own experience, but something that happened to my grandfather and one of his brothers in the mid-1930s. My grandfather, Levy, and his 12 siblings grew up in West Virginia, up a hollow called Sinking Creek. They walked several miles to and from school along a narrow mountain path that in many places was bordered with thick brambles and thorns. On one of these days, walking home from school, Levy and his brother, Willard, saw a young girl walking out of the brambles on one side of the path. She was barefoot and wearing a thin cotton dress, but was not cut up or torn by the thorns. She walked across the pass without looking at them and into the thorns on the other side. They tried to follow her and find her, but they couldn't find any sign of her afterwards. Being a small rural community, they knew everyone in the area and they didn't recognize the girl and never saw her again afterwards. I realize this is not much of a story, but I do find it quite believable. Apparently, my great grandfather had a reputation for stringent honesty and expecting the same from his children. One of his children once received a small loan from someone they met in another state based purely on his reputation for honesty. All the best, Russ. Cheers, Russ. And I think it's really interesting that that story is actually not so different from the story before it. Um, you know, they're both walking along these kind of rural pathways and seeing someone that then disappears. So it's kind of interesting how, you know, it's a recurring theme. So the next story we've got is from uh, Taya. Taya? I hope I said your name right. Apologies if I didn't. You have to send me an email berating me and telling me I'm a moron if I got it wrong. Um, but yeah, Taya says, One year, 30 years ago now, I was at my mum's house on Christmas Eve for our traditional dinner. We were sitting in our living room, chatting and waiting for my brother to show up. She had a set of bell-shaped Christmas lights that were antiques. They were her grandmothers before her, so they must have been made in the 1950s. I remember her having them my whole life, and she still does to this day. She had them up around a small window, all on their own, away from the rest of the decorations. I was noticing out of the corner of my eye that these bell lights were flashing, and they had never been flashing lights before. It took a long time for that to come to the front of my brain whilst talking to my mum. So suddenly I ask, Oh, do you have one of those flashing pugs on those lights? You know, the ones you could plug in between your lights and plug to make any Christmas lights flashing ones. No, I didn't even notice they were flashing, says my mum. Just at that point, my brother came in the front door and so we pointed out the flashing lights to him. He goes over to the lights and is looking at the whole string, etc. Then he kind of pops up really fast and says most calmly, you mean these lights here that are not even plugged in? He's holding the plug in his hand. All three of us were now staring at a set of lights that flashed three more times and then went out. My mum's owned these lights since the 1970s and has never had to replace a bolt. My daughter has also seen the lights flashing. Haunted Christmas decorations. That's exciting. That's even more exciting than my, I've, I've got the same decorations that I had when I was a kid and I love them, but they're not haunted. That would be cool. I'd much prefer it if they were. So the next story we've got is from Justin, and uh, Justin says that he's so glad that you keep this tradition of spooky stories told around Christmas alive, and we'd like to share one with you and your audience. The following story begins during my preteen years, growing up in r- rural Oklahoma. At the time, I lived on an old dairy farm, but most of my cousins and extended family were in a small town about four miles from our house. Things were different then. Our parents pretty much gave us free rein to run around town alone and explored the surrounding woods so long as we were home before dark. I think people were a little less scared in general back then. Plus, it was a tight-knit little town where everyone knew each other and their families. One summer, this must have been in the mid to late 1980s, as I would have been about 10 or 12 years old at the time, stories began to spread of a haunted house just outside the town. I wasn't yet old enough to hang out with the teenagers myself but my two older cousins did. One of their friends started telling a scary story about this nearby abandoned house. The house sat back off a dirt road, maybe a mile and a half or so outside of town. It became something of a popular spot for young couples to find some privacy and go park. This young lady and her boyfriend went out there one evening in his car. To the best of my recollection, her story went that the two of them were outside of the car, he sitting on the hood and her with her back to the house. She said that he suddenly became very scared and agitated and told her to get back in the car and that they had to leave. At first, she said she thought he was trying to just scare her, but quickly saw that he was generally frightened. She said as they scrambled into the car, she looked out the windshield to see a hazy white figure slowly moving up the driveway toward them from the house. They hurried out there and both swore they would never go back. This, of course, led to multiple bands of kids making forays to the haunted house that summer. A few came back with tales of pale white figures seen through windows or strange knocking sounds that no one in the group would admit to making. One afternoon, myself, my two cousins, and one of their friends mustered the internal fortitude to go see for ourselves. We packed some supplies and hiked out to explore the ghost house. I recall the day was clear and very warm, and as we approached the house up the old dirt driveway, We crept around the house and went inside as the main door was long since missing. The front door opened into a large common area. There were two other rooms and a kitchen downstairs. None of us managed the courage to go upstairs and see any of the second floor. The house itself was empty and dirty, but rather still and cold inside. There were dark stains all over the walls that in retrospect were likely from the leaking roof, but at the time we were convinced ourselves that it was some kind of ectoplasmic residue. I remember distinctly that there was a separate structure on the grounds, a fairly large shed with one window covered with a metal grate or grid. The main door was still on and it had a bolt attached that could have been used to lock the shed from the outside. These kinds of sheds weren't atypical of older houses in the area. My grandmother's house in town had one that everyone in the family called the smokehouse, even though by the time I came along, it was mostly used for storage. Long story short, Our little team of ghost hunters came up empty handed that day. No spooks were seen or heard. When I got home, I told my parents about our adventure. My dad asked me if I was talking about the old so-and-so place. I can't recall the name, but nearly every property back then was tied by local nomenclature to the family that originally lived there. I said I thought so, and he told me to be very careful messing around that house because it had a cistern under the front porch that probably suffered from disrepair and could be very dangerous. I asked him how he knew that, and he told me that his family had rented the house for a brief time when he was a boy. Of course, I had to know if they had encountered any ghosts, as all the kids in the town were sure the place was haunted. He told me that when his family rented the house, he slept downstairs in one room, and two of his sisters shared the other downstairs room. He recalled many nights when one of his sisters would wake up everyone in the house crying and hollering about somebody looking into their room. She would swear she saw an old lady staring in at them from outside their window. My grandfather came down the stairs every time, looked around, but nobody was ever there. Dad said Grandpa always blamed nearby teenage boys putting pranks. The same sister also suffered recurring nightmares, according to my father. He said she would tell the whole family how she often dreamed of being in a procession in the main room of the house, moving slowly toward an open coffin. As soon as it was her turn to see who was inside, she would wake up. Dad said she was convinced that if she ever did get to see the body, it would be herself lying in the coffin and she would never wake up again. Dad said he just thought that they were both scared sleeping downstairs and she was being melodramatic. Once they had moved back into town, however, my grandparents told Dad the story of the family that had originally lived in the house. They didn't tell the kids at the time to keep from scaring my poor aunt even worse. The story goes that the mother or mother-in-law of the original owners lost their mind. There weren't really any kind of psychiatric services to be found in those days, so they kept her locked in the smokehouse shed. Eventually, she passed away. My grandparents told Dad that the small funeral service for her had been held inside the house. In fact, the coffin was laid out in the very room my aunt dreamed about. Evidently, the rumour at the time was that the family couldn't afford a cemetery plot and had buried her somewhere on the property. My parents still live in the area, and while I would dearly love to go out and visit the haunted house again, sadly it was torn down many years ago. The last time I went by there wasn't much more than pasture land to be seen there now. But maybe every so often on a moonless night, a sad pale phantom still haunts those grounds looking in vain for the family that left her behind. Love the show, Merry Christmas and Happy Boxing Day. And I think we're going to wrap that up there and come back and finish the rest of the stories off in a second part, say that I will get out in between Christmas and New Year if I can replace my audio thing before then, depending on like Christmas deliveries and, and you know, opening hours even, because of, of, it's kind of specialist, I guess. Um, then yeah hopefully the audio will be better if not the audio is going to be the same as this again unfortunately although hopefully this isn't too bad but anyway I'll see you then Merry Christmas I hope you have a great day Um, you know I hope you have if you don't um, celebrate Christmas you know just happy holidays I hope you have a great day off I guess because most people get days off on Christmas regardless right so yeah you know have a great day whatever you're doing um stay healthy and uh i'll see you real soon for the second part thanks very much for listening cheers